Hello, I'm your host Brett Hutchins. This episode of the Media Sport Podcast Series is being recorded at Arizona State University in Phoenix in the US. I've been fortunate enough to spend some time in the Valley of the Sun for a period of research and writing and I can report that the weather is warm and the landscape compellingly stark, at least in Phoenix. For a flavour of what it's like here, they've got a swimming pool next to the seats at Chase Field, home of the Arizona Diamondbacks baseball team, and attending a game is quite an experience. It's certainly the first time I've attended a game in a 50,000-seat stadium that is actually fully air-conditioned. I'm presently sitting in the office of Jimmy Sanderson, a newly appointed assistant professor in the School of Social and Behavioural Sciences at Arizona State. Jimmy was previously in the Department of Communication Studies at Clemson University in South Carolina. He is a scholar who has helped set the agenda for social media and sport research in the US particularly, examining major athlete scandals, fan behaviours and issues such as gender and race as as they're played out on various social media services. I started reading his work about six years ago when he began to publish a flurry of book chapters and articles that appeared in journals such as Mass Communication and Society, Journal of Broadcasting and Electronic Media, Journal of Sport and Social Issues, and Sociology of Sport Journal. Jimmy is also the author of It's a Whole New Ball Game, How Social Media is Changing Sports, a book published in 2011. A founding member of the International Association for Communication and Sport, he also sits on the editorial board of the association's journal, Communication and Sport, which is published by SAGE. And he's someone whose research and teaching strives to achieve a difficult balance, that is, between answering questions of social, cultural and economic significance and engaging with the organisations, teams and fans that produce the content churned out with stunning speed by services such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat. It's a pleasure to be speaking with him. Jimmy, welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thanks, Brett. It's uh, been great to have you here. I've uh, enjoyed our time and uh, look forward to our chat today. Now, social networking services have grown remarkably in popularity over the past decade, and they're often evolving with changes in technology, such as broadband internet, smartphones, the rise of mobile apps. Given all these changes, what do you think the term social media describes at this point in time, and in what ways is it still useful? Uh, That's a great question. So I think um, for me, you know, social media... We kind of tend to look at it at the basic level of just connection and being able to connect. But uh, as some people have written, that's kind of always been there with any media. Like media has always kind of been social. So I think for me, what really distinguishes uh, social media today is the uh, content creation capability. So if we look at you know kind of older media, while we consume that. Um, it, was, it was very difficult to actually produce that uh, as, a, as an audience member. Uh, so I think, I think for me, the main element of, of social media is that, that media production aspect that you as a user are able to create and generate content and disseminate that. Uh, and really, it can have very, very easily become mass. Uh, so I think, you know, a term I've used uh, in classes and with other organizations is uh, social media makes us all mass communicators, um, whether we intend that or not. Um, so I think for me, there's that, there's that content production 
uh, element to it. Um, and then I think second uh, is, is is that that transmission, that that dissemination capability that is there that uh, is outside of our control. So uh, you know, whenever we post something, we really have no. Uh, we don't control what anyone else does with that. So someone could print that off and take it somewhere. They could share it with their 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 own uh, individual networks. Uh, and and so I think just for me, there's that transmission, that distribution process that can just become exponentially really global. Uh, you know, depending on on what kind of content is generated. Um, and and then you know, and, and I'm not sure this is you know really what you're getting at, but. Uh, I think the, the mobile capability has just become, you know, I would I would argue pretty much undeniable in the sense that uh, we are now wanting our media to be portable. Um, we want to access it uh, when we when we want to access it, how we want to access it, and we want to be the drivers of the ship in terms of what content we get and what content we and excuse me when we when we get that. So um, I think there's there's a, there's a degree of autonomy or ownership that we have with social media that allows us to customize um, the content that we receive on our own schedule and in the manner in which we, we want to do it. So, um, you know, I, I think that the definition, I mean, you, you, t- you tend to see kind of standard things. Well, it's peer networks that involve user-generated content, that there's community and collaboration. So I think that definition, you know, is, is still true and it's been relatively static over the last few years. But, um you know, I think we just have to be careful in terms of how we're conceptualizing social media and and um, not and, and not thinking that this is entirely new. Your work obviously focuses on, or you think about these issues through the lens of sport. How does you know what's the role of sport on social media, and how does it perhaps differ, or how is it similar to some other forms of content you might find on social media? I suppose maybe discussion or content around. Politics, music, you choose, but, mm-hmm. you know, that sense of what's unique about sport and, and how does it sort of help build our understanding? Sure. Well, I think one thing that, that's unique about sport is that in many cases, um, and this was, in, in my opinion, very true with Twitter, uh, people in sport were early adopters. Um, so we had athletes like Lance Armstrong and Shaquille O'Neal who... Uh, and, and of course, we could talk about Cristiano Ronaldo, who has his own app, and uh, <laughs> you know, is really kind of just a case study in and of himself. Uh, but you know, so as, as athletes, we're kind of early adopters of many of these platforms, and so a lot of the usage and, and the ways that they were um, used to to connect and, and kind of merge that divide between audience and celebrity i think sport has been kind of very influential in that you know clearly there's lots of celebrities who use social media but in you know my my experience has been that you see athletes more willing to engage than say pop singers or uh you know movie actors or actresses so i mean there tends to be a little more intimacy i think um and, and i think sport's been really good at kind of you know being at the forefront so as we've seen kind of uh, you know, for example, Snapchat. So, you know, a lot of sport organizations were early adopters in the Snapchat because they saw that that's where a younger audience demographic was going. Um, you know, so I think I think in many ways sport has been innovative um, in in the applications of of the way that social media is used. I think they've also been um, innovative in the sense that showing how an organization can reach an audience and engage and connect with an audience. Um, 
in terms of how it's different, I'm not really sure that there's a, a whole lot of difference because as a as an organization, they have the same goals that any other organization might have in terms of, you know, driving sales and and and, and the marketing and the financial things as well too. So, um, you know, I, I would say that I think sports organizations can be a little more. Um, they, they can use humor and be a little more light-handed maybe than, you know, a, a larger international conglomerate might be able to be. Um, so maybe they have more opportunities to show personality and those sorts of things. Um, you know, another thing I think where sport is different is as we've seen the emergence of video streaming like Facebook Live and Periscope. Uh, you know, sports organizations are faced with media rights questions. And, uh, you know, in, in many instances they've tried to – uh, prohibit fans from filming on Periscope at games and things like that. And, uh, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't have to necessarily worry about that. So, uh, you know, I think there's kind of some unique challenges to sport um, with the media rights and those sorts of things as well. And, of course, with the various opportunities for communication and, and sort of promotion and, I suppose, athletes expressing themselves comes often... The other side of that, which is trolling, misogyny, uh, surveillance, mm-hmm, and yeah. is, you know, what, what what are your thoughts around that? I mean, how that does it does it lead to a certain banality in the sorts of social media communication, or does it is it simply a byproduct of the the, the ways these social media channels are constructed at, in terms of communication? Uh, you know, to to me, I, I don't know that it. I think it's more of a byproduct. So. I mean, it's kind of part of the, you know, natural evolution, I think, of social media and even the internet more broadly in the sense that, um, you know, users are the ones that really kind of shape how we perceive and and how we use that. Um, And so I think what's been interesting uh, with, with, you know, some of the things you mentioned is that, you know, social media provides an avenue for people to express those things, you know, so we see a lot of misogyny towards female athletes and female sports media uh, members and those sorts of things. And, you know, clearly they're problematic. Um, But at the same time, I think what's good about that is that that is how an actual segment of our society feels. Um, and, and, you, and you could argue there's people doing it just to, you know, for the trolling sake. That's not really how they feel. They're just trying to be, uh, you know, snarky for lack of a better word. But uh, to me, you just – I don't think you can underestimate some of the things that people say and especially when we start talking about death threats or, or, or saying that they want someone to be raped and, and those sorts of things. I mean that I think shines, you know, a very interesting light on our society. And so while we'd like to think that, oh, our society is advancing, we're becoming more – diverse, we're becoming more tolerant. Uh, you know, at the same time, we still have to remember that these issues do exist, uh, particularly in sport, which many people like to see as this haven, as you know, uh, that is free from a lot of those those, those problems. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think we're seeing some of the where I do think we're seeing evolution is in the sense of, you know, that I think people are becoming more um, sensitive to those kind of things and fighting back and pushing back against those sort of things. And so as we see that and as people get more education um, and, and maybe, you know, experience consequences, unfortunately, that might kind of evolve the usage. And I think we still – it's important to remember too that, you know, really these technologies are only a decade, you know, about tw- decade, 12 years old. So we're still really in the infancy of, of, of this kind of whole communication infrastructure if we think about – you know, 
what it was like in the early days of radio or the early days of, of newspaper. Uh, there was probably a lot of issues, and then there were there were probably things that they had to sort out and figure out and and work through. And so I think we're kind of in that phase now with with social media is we're we're figuring out okay, people are just kind of using it in all these ways. And then we're we're adapting to that where people are revising how they how they behave and uh, as consequences and other things happen. So um, I think it'll be interesting to watch the evolution uh, continue to occur as we get more experience and more data behind us of, of the ways people are using them. Snapchat, what is it and why? what do you think it matters in the context of thinking about social media? Yeah. Well, let me just say, if you're over the age of 25, Snapchat is now gunning for you because they just announced that they are now switching their strategy to target the 35 and older demographic. Um, so, but just, just real, so Snapchat's coming for you, but uh, 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 real quickly, Snapchat is it's predicated on the notion of, of disappearing content. So it's a visual platform and it's entirely mobile. Um, so essentially what you would do is you would take a picture or a short video, you would, and, and when you post that, it would go to your, your friends or your Snapchat connections, and after they viewed it for 10 seconds, it would disappear uh, from their feed. Um, so as you might imagine, uh, when it first started, it was very popular with teens and there was a lot of sexting and uh, kind of nudity and just, you know, here's me doing something I probably shouldn't be doing and ha ha, uh, you know, but no one's going to know about it because the snap's going to disappear. Uh, well, as, as we know, uh, that, the, you know, it's interesting because Snapchat kind of sells it based on this notion of, of temporary content. And while that is in fact the case, um, that does not equate with that it disappears entirely. So uh, if you go back a couple of years, Snapchat actually had their servers hacked. Uh, but, you know, people started figuring out that they could screenshot the snaps. Uh, and then now there are apps uh, that you can get from the App Store that will allow you to save the snaps. Um, and so, not surprisingly, people have kind of gotten in trouble uh, for things that they thought no one else was going to see, but ended someone ended up being able to show to someone else. And in fact, there was just a story uh, this last week from a, a football player at Baylor University here in the United States, um, and he was uh, unfortunately abusing his dog, and his teammate took a pic, filmed it on, and put it on Snapchat. And so, uh, you know, here's this, and then now Baylor University, who's already dealing with some other uh, scandal issues, is dealing with an additional issue uh, because of a teammate posting a video of another teammate, you know, abusing his dog. And, and so, I mean, it's just, it just shows that, um, you know, it's very easy for that to become public. Um, and so, but but kind of getting back to the trajectory of Snapchat. So, you know, that was kind of the early uh, kind of uses of Snapchat. It was kind of this cute thing that kids did among themselves. Uh, and then Snapchat started figuring out, gee, if we go after the brands, we'll get, increase our valuation quite a bit. So, uh, you know, they they started offering the story feature where essentially you would tell a story through the different snaps and a lot of brand Taco Bell, ironically enough, as it was a big early adopter of Snapchat. You know, Snapchat's evolution has been that of Facebook and other. And others is that you know as um, you know as they've gone after the brands and 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 the and the the commodification of it, if you will, that then requires them to go after an audience who has money, and that's not the teens. So I think that's why you're seeing Snapchat now go now acknowledging that they're going to go after an older market. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with their user base because they just passed Twitter in terms of number of, of daily users. Um, and it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where the teens go now as their parents and, you know, even grandparents start to get more on the Snapchat. 
What I notice with Snapchat, and it's interesting the point you make about the over 35s and and what was happening during the Olympics, and is it it's sort of an interesting mix of news service in some ways, yeah. but news delivered in a sort of almost buzz a newstainment mm-hmm. fashion. Uh, but CNN's on there, you know, like the, yeah, you're right about a lot of the brands, but also some of the more I suppose, gossipy mm-hmm. um, sort of teen sites, and then you've of course got the feed below it, which anybody put in there so it sort of sits somewhere between what your point about a form of mass media and also a form of social media mm-hmm. does that then mean that some of the uh, you know for one of a to be really crude about it the dick <laughs> the dick pics have moved on to uh <laughs> moved on to other services i mean yeah this is what i find interesting about social media is you know that, that those types of changes you know what where where does snapchat fit in that ecology if it mm-hmm. moves away from what teens are doing with mobile phones? yeah that's a great question i mean you know where those pictures have gone i'm not entirely sure <laughs> but, uh, i don't know that i want to know where they've gone but uh you know, I mean, I, they should. You know, I mean, they still happen, but just to a much smaller degree, and they still happen on Twitter. They still happen on Instagram. But you're right. I mean, that you know, where they go is going to be interesting to follow because it, what the cycle tends to be is that you know, teens go to this site, they populate it, drive the numbers up, and then the sites figure out we can get the brands right. And so the brand, and why do the brands follow? Right, the brands follow because. That's where they are. And when I say brands, I mean news organizations too, uh, you know, and, and mass media organizations. They're trying to reach that that demographic as well too. And you know, your point about the kind of the the, the, the news attainment is interesting too because uh, you know if you look at, at just some of the trends, I mean, most people, and especially I think this is the case for teens, uh, they're not interested in all the news. They want they want it very quick and in a way that they can process process it and engage with. And that's often not the way news has traditionally been delivered, right? So, you know, I think that, in a sense, waters down maybe, uh, you know, some of some of our the ways that we're talking about really important issues. But if we're if we're jazzing them up so we can get you know the young people to open them up on Snapchat uh, because they won't watch TV and they won't go online or they won't you know these other things. So. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question about the ecology. And I think, it's, you know, again, we, we're, we're kind of in this really interesting period where we're holding stable, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, even Pinterest and YouTube. Like they're kind of they've kind of been very stable. We haven't really seen, you know, Snapchat emerge, you know, four or five years ago. So we haven't really seen a big again, there's a lot of niche sites out there, but we haven't really seen one kind of rise into that top tier like Snapchat did a few years ago. So it'll be interesting to see if we see someone come into that top tier and if they knock somebody down or, uh, you know, just it, it, it remains stable. Mm. You do a lot of reviewing for journals, particularly manuscripts that analyze sports content on Twitter. Yes, I do. And, yeah. uh, and as an aside, I recommend to listeners a, a Twitter research forum published in Communication and Sport in 2014 which featured eight short essays that analyse the strengths and weaknesses of research dealing with this particular service and its content. Now, Jimmy's essay was titled, What Do We Do With Twitter? I'll put your question to you again oh and boy, then add okay. my own. <laughs> right. what, what do we do with it? And how much more is there really to say about it? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Well, um, you know, in terms of, of, of what do we do with it, um, you know, I think... 
one of my big critiques that, that I often put in my responses to, to, the, to the folks who send in the manuscripts is you're, you're not really telling us anything we don't know, right? And so, which I guess is kind of answering your, your second question in, in a ways. But, you know, so what, what, tend, what I tend to see a lot of is the rationale for a study on Twitter is, well, uh, you know, someone looked at how, uh, you know, quarterbacks use Twitter. Somebody looked at how running backs use Twitter, but nobody's looked at how wide receivers use Twitter. So we need to look at wide receivers use Twitter. Um, and, I, and, and for me personally, I don't think that's a, a very good rationale. Um, you know, that, that, that someone has not done something, there might be a good reason someone has not done something, right? You know, you know, we need to look at the larger kind of issues uh, and, and the larger kind of infrastructure of Twitter. So, you know, I think while there's still value in content uh, studies, you know, and, and, and that, um, you know, I, I think we need to look at kind of the – so this would answer your second question, um, I guess, more is – we need to look at what 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 is you know the impact of Twitter. So, for instance, um, there's a lot we can learn about Twitter without studying one tweet, right? So, you know, we, what are what about organizational policies? What are ways in which people or organizations are trying to curtail or modify how employees or in this case athletes uh, use Twitter? Um, you know, the essay that you wrote and the essay that David Rowe wrote for that forum. You know, this came up in my class actually the other day, and someone was talking about, you know, social media, and they were kind of complaining about it, and you know, hoping it would go away. And you know, my comment to them was, you know, it's not going to because there's too much. The advert, the brands, and the organizations see too much. They'll, they're going to pay for the access to that audience, right? So if you're Facebook and you have an audience of over a billion people, brands are going to pay for that, right? And so I think. You know, if we talk about well, LeBron James is using Twitter, that's great. But what is the what is the economic and and kind of cultural uh, impact or realities of LeBron James using Twitter? Because LeBron James using Twitter benefits Twitter because it drives people to LeBron James feed and subsequently allows them an audience they can sell to Pepsi or McDonald's or anybody else. Uh, and so I think looking at the Kind of you know the the larger picture, the financial you know what are the financial and the commodification elements to Twitter? What are ways in which uh, you know one thing I would say a content study that I think could be valuable. Um, you know we're seeing a lot of athletes uh, really engage in social issues, and a lot of athletes are um, speaking out more on, on 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 Twitter and other social media platforms. So you know what what is the implication of athletes doing that, and how does that um, you know kind of circumvent you know some of the traditional sport you know ideology that we have, and 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 more importantly maybe what is the pushback then from the Twitter users because if if they're getting you know, if they, if they speak out on racial issues and they're getting responded with a bunch of racial and racist language, well, does that then make them want to continue to speak out or not, right? And so I think looking at those kind of things, and in fact, um, this is with Facebook, but I just did a study with, with, with someone where we looked at um, responses to activism. And, and one of the ways in which the fans were responding to the athletes' activism was by tagging sponsors on Twitter and saying boycott this team. So they were actually going to social media, to the sponsors, 
and telling them to pull their advertising from the team because they didn't agree with what the athletes did. So, you know, those I think are really interesting conversations for us to have as well too. Um, so um, what do we do with Twitter? I think we need to get away from the content unless you can make, unless you can make a really compelling case. And, and there are compelling cases to be made for sure. But it's not compelling enough to just say, well, nobody's done this. or and, and, you know, even a lot of manuscripts I see will say, well, in someone's essay, they said future research should look at that. And I mean, okay, yeah, but you got to give me something more than that too, right? Because I think we have kind of, you know, Twitter was, um, as, we, as we talked about earlier, it's one of kind of the first platforms where sport – uh, you know, athletes were really kind of populating it. So, you know, to me, it was kind of natural that our research would, would kind of follow. Um, but I think we need to remember, too, that, you know, athletes are on all sorts of other platforms now. So, I mean, it's not just, you know, and, and not, I mean, something that I used to say in, in manuscripts several years ago was that Twitter uh, was the place for athletes and people and sports stakeholders. And I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Um, you know, I think they're equally represented on Instagram and Snapchat. And so I think we just need to be more broad in some of our content work that we do. But I would really advocate for people looking at, you know, kind of what what are the what are the consequences or what are the effects? Or let's look at the macro level things going on here that don't even really involve the content. I'd like to change tack. And, uh, we've been speaking, and I know you've been thinking a lot about the question of family communication yeah. around sport and, and junior sport. What drew your attention to this area? Why is it important? Well, yeah, so what drew my attention to it was uh, it's what I live. So my, I have two, two boys who are both very active in sports. Um, and particularly my younger son is very active in, um, club baseball. And so, uh, you know, just really through my experiences with that, um, just really kind of got started thinking about, uh, you know, I was like, gee, we really don't do much in communication with youth, uh, and families as it pertains to sport. And, you know, speaking as a, you know, just from the American uh, angle, and I'm sure this is the case, you know, and as, as we've talked about in Australia and other places around the world, it's a big part of families' lives. I mean, if you have a kid that plays sport, and especially if, if that child plays competitive club sport, that's a big major time commitment and, 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 and part of your life. And yet a lot of the work that's done in that area is coming out of leisure studies, um, and we don't really see a lot of... Uh, you know, work in in communication, and we don't. Re- Interestingly enough, we don't see a lot of work in media. So, uh, you know, for instance, we've talked a little bit about the Little League World Series and just how that has become a national uh, and global kind of media production, where these twelve and thirteen year old kids are playing in front of a television audience of millions and, and being scrutinized. And uh, you know, so I think there's some real rich opportunities from just the media side of things. Um, and in fact, uh, Michael Mesner um, had an essay in, I want to say, Sociology of Sport or International Review of Sociology of Sport a couple of years ago that talks about, you know, where are the kids basically saying, we don't, we haven't done very much work on kids and yet that's a huge part of sport. And I, th- I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is, you know, you're talking about the human subjects and, um, you know, people may be reticent to go through the ethics committee and the IRBs and that sort of thing. But to me, I just, you know, really feel like um, that's a huge area of need in our discipline and our field because it's so prevalent. It's something that 
uh, you know, not only occupies so many people's so much people's time, but when you start talking about things like parental pressure and the way parents behave and the way parents, uh, you know, might you know, how much how much consent do kids have to what they do and how does that affect family dynamics if you know the other siblings are being hauled around to tournament after tournament every weekend and uh you know what about the financial you know there's a financial cost there uh, how are these kids being portrayed because you know i would argue that the increase in portrayal of youth athletes then influences parents to say well my gee i want my kid to do that and we've seen the whole rise of the club system and private coaching and you know just all sorts of really interesting things that i think are just waiting there for for, for folks in our field to to analyze so that but so that's a long way of saying you know just through my own it's through my own lived experience really that kind of piqued my interest in it you know the little league world series now I, I'm presently sitting in my hotel room at, at, at nights watching a bit of this and could you explain or set the scene for what that is I mean it, it really is a remarkable thing to be staring at from an outsider's perspective to the US mm-hmm. yeah so it's a really fascinating thing so you know so little league uh, little league is the is the predominant um, youth baseball organization in the United States and they're also international so uh, the little League World Series um, what happens at least in the United States is uh, at the end of every little league season, an all-star team is selected from each local league, and then that each of those teams travel to what's called a district tournament, and then the winner of that goes to a regional tournament, uh, and the winners of the regional tournaments then go to a larger regional tournament, uh, and the winner of that then represents a particular portion of the United States at the Little League World Series. So you have um, like the Great Lakes, which is the Ohio, Michigan, uh, Minnesota type area, for example. You have the Southeast, which is like the Georgia, Florida, South Carolina region, for example. And then, um, so there's kind of like a U.S. bracket, um, and there's an international bracket. So there's teams that come from Australia and Panama and, and, and Korea. And they used to kind of keep them isolated, but I've noticed this year that they've started to kind of play them against each other a little more. Um, and so every all those teams come to Williamsport, Pennsylvania for about two and a half, three weeks uh, at this time of year. And then they participate in – there's a tournament and they whittle it down to the to – the, at least – you know, I'm not sure how it's going to work this year, but last year they whittled it down to the two international teams and the two United States teams, and the winner of those then played for the, uh, you know, ultimate championship. Although if you won the U.S. championship but lost the world championship, you were still the U.S. champions. But it's really become this this mega. You know, I wouldn't say it's a mega event on par with the Olympics or anything like that, but. Um, it's really just inc- – it's become this huge media production. So I remember watching it as a kid and ABC would maybe show, uh, you know, the last couple games leading up to the championship on a Saturday and that was all you really saw. But now they're covering down to the regional tournaments. Uh, so, you know, so really for about six weeks ESPN is, is giving mainstream coverage to this uh, event and, you know, it, I mean, it, on, on one hand, you can say, well, oh, that's great. These kids are, you know, what an experience to be playing on ESPN and all this other stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it's really commodified the whole thing because there's so much advertising associated with it now and the, the, the baseball bat manufacturers and, uh, you know, base, other baseball equipment makers are, you know, very prominently featured and, and that and, um, and, and those kids are under a lot of pressure. And so there's been some critiques about, you know, well, 
uh, we shouldn't be subjecting these kids to this kind of media scrutiny at this at this young age. But um, you know, and, and I mean, I'm not that familiar with the ratings, but clearly ESPN wouldn't continue to broadcast it if it wasn't, you know, generating, you know, significant uh, audience uh, consumption. So um, it, it's just interesting how it has evolved into – so that's kind of what it is. But, it, you know, it's just really become a huge media production um, that I, I think really has a lot of implications in terms of the way we think about youth sports and, you know, how it kind of glamorizes – glamorizes it and what are you know there's some effects i think from that in terms of the way people think about youth sports and you know the pressure to to get to the little league world series and 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 you know again these are um and usually what happens is as is true with you know a lot of media broadcasts like they'll identify a couple kids that are, are tending to outperform and they really frame those kids in very strategic ways to draw audiences in which you know, uh, can be problematic because then there's expectations associated with those kids. And uh, a lot of those kids haven't even hit puberty yet. So, you know, here's, here they are kind of, you know, this kid's going to be, you know, and, and then they, they'll compare the kid to a major league p- baseball player. And while he's the equivalent of Mike Trout or he's the equivalent of, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez or whatever. And I'm not sure that's really fair to those kids to be saying at 12 years old, well, he profiles as this Major League Baseball superstar. So, um, you know, I'm sure it's a great experience for those kids and and, and that, but, uh, you know, there's just – there's a lot of problems that people have critiqued about and I think would warrant, uh, you know, some kind of academic inquiry as well uh, just because it is has become such a spectacle. What's interesting, at least in the United States, is – that the, this this ageism is is becoming earlier and earlier. So, for instance, uh, you know, and this is as we've talked about um, during your visit. You know, intercollegiate athletics is is a pretty United States uh, only phenomenon in the sense that you know most colleges elsewhere don't have football teams that you know and, and all this other stuff. But uh, what what's happening in the United States is that these college football programs are now offering scholarships to kids as young as twelve and thirteen years old. Um, yeah, and, 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 and there are, um, ranking services who, 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 uh, rank these kids and, and say how good they are and that kind of influences what schools go after them. And, uh, recently one of the big, uh, ranking services who is called Rivals, uh, started ranking sixth graders. Uh, so here are kids seven years away from even being el- eligible to be in college and yet they're already being profiled as a as an elite quarterback, uh, and they haven't even hit puberty yet. So, and and as you might imagine, fans then kind of just gravitate. You know, fans. Uh, a lot of fans in the United States have a very insatiable appetite for recruiting, and are constantly on the lookout for the next great player that their school is going to recruit. So, uh, you know, to me, I'm really fascinated by what are the implications of ranking 12th graders in in a national ranking service uh, because I think that is just hugely problematic. If you could nominate a book that listeners should read from mm-hmm. any area, what, what would it be? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give one that's on topic and one that's off topic, if that's okay. Um, so the one book that's kind of on topic that I would really recommend for um, readers is a book called Until It, Until it Hurts uh, by Mark Hyman. H-Y-M-A-N, um, and that's a book I've used in uh, class, uh, in several classes I've taught. And, and what it, 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 it's U.S.-focused, but it, it, it kind of critiques the whole youth sports system in the United States. 
Um, and Mark Hyman is a former journalist who's now a law professor at George Washington University. But he he kind of frames the book through his own experience with his son playing baseball. Um, and he was very, you know, he kind of talks about his own journey and kind of the pressure he put on his son. And his son ended up having to have Tommy John surgery, which is a very uh, unfortunately now common surgery that, that kids who pitch in baseball get a lot. It takes about a year to 18 months to rehabilitate. Um, but it's, you know, really just kind of, um, you know, is, is a good kind of just overview and critique of, uh, of of things that have just kind of mushroomed over the past 25, 30 years in the youth sports uh, scene and I think asks a lot of really important questions. And it's a really, it's a really short book. It's, you know, it's something someone could probably get through in, you know, a couple of days. It's a really interesting read. So I would really uh, highly recommend that. Uh, and then since we've been talking a lot about technology, um, you know, one book I would recommend, uh, it, it's, it's called um, uh, One Second After. Um, and I can't remember the guy's first name, but his last name is Fortune, like F-O-R-T-S-H-E-N or something like William Fortune is, is the author. And it's about uh, electromagnetic, uh, excuse me, electromagnetic pulse or EMP which essentially is uh, someone, if someone were to launch a nuclear weapon into space and it were to explode and then uh, destroy the electrical grid, uh, what would happen to our society uh, when all the electricity stopped working and all our devices stopped working? Uh, and it's, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, science fiction type book, but it's really, for, you know, it's really interesting to think about as dependent as we are on technology, uh, what would happen if we didn't have it? Uh, you know, and so it's just kind of, a, you know, it's a book that I actually read in a day because it was just so uh, engaging to me. Um, but, but you know, I think it's important for us to think about, well, gee, what what would happen if the grid were all of a sudden destroyed? You know, how would we operate? What would happen to, you know, it's interesting because the book talks about people who use like diabetic pumps and, you know, the elderly and, all, and, and what would happen to them if, uh, you know, electricity was gone and power was gone. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of an interesting critique, but just kind of an interesting, kind of thought-provoking book as well, too. So, uh, you know, I'd recommend that. Finally, um, what are you working on now, and what can we look forward to over the next couple of years? Okay, well, um, you know, I, as we talked about, you know, I am um, starting to put together some thoughts on family communication and sport, and I actually um, I'm hopeful to, to kind of get a uh, book proposal generated here soon that would kind of just outline a trajectory um, and kind of research that we need to do in, in communication and sport as it pertains to youth sport and the family. Um, so that's, you know, something that I'm really starting to devote a lot of time to right now. Um, I'm also, um, you know, a lot in terms of social media, I've kind of been moved towards um, discussions on social media about safety and health initiatives in sport. So I'm currently working on a, on a study looking at, uh, you know, kind of perceptions and framing to the Ivy League, um, who a couple months ago announced that they were going to, uh, the coaches of each Ivy League football program um, announced that they were no longer going to do uh, tackling in practice. So they were going to remove um, all sorts of tackling uh, from practice drills, which has been very interesting. I just got through most of the data yesterday, and uh, a lot of people are equating that with the what they call the, the pussification of America and kind of just, uh, you know, the, this masculinity that America, it's evidence of America becoming soft, that uh, we're not going to let people tackle each other in practice. And I just find those kind of linkages very interesting that um, 
somehow or another trying to be healthy <laughs> is equated with losing your masculinity. Uh, so I'm working on that right now and also similar to that, another project that looks at kind of the reactions to Pop Warner, which is the big – it'd be the Little League equivalent of football in the United States. Um, Pop Warner just announced that they were removing kickoffs from uh, two or three of their youngest age divisions. And so, uh, you know, just kind of looking at, you know, the ways that people are talking about that and how that discourse kind of really, you know, it says something about sport, but I think it, you know, the larger argument that the collaborators and I are trying to make is that it says something about our society, really. It, it, it's more indicative of what we think as a society and kind of some of these notions of as we become more progressive, uh, you know, there's a segment who feels that that is equivalent with losing our masculinity and our American identity and being invaded and all the really interesting comments that people have. Um, so, so those are some things that I'm working on that you can look out uh, on hopefully over the next couple of years. Jimmy, uh, thanks for welcoming me so warmly to Arizona oh. and thanks for taking the time and speaking to me for the Media Sport podcast series. Thanks, Brett. It's been an absolute, uh, it was an absolute pleasure having you.